This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. We need to wrap up uh, this, this section uh, with Theses 17 to 18. I just want to note um, the distinction on what despair, what despair means in these two theses, because um, they almost seem to contradict each other. So 17, it says, nor does speaking in this manner give cause for despair. So this does not cause despair, but it arouses the desire to humble oneself and seek the grace of Christ. But, and then 18, it says, it is certain that human beings must utterly despair of their own abilities before they are prepared to receive the grace of Christ. So what do you think, what do you think Luther is getting at with those two uses of despair? In what, in what way do we despair and in what way do we not despair? Are they the same word in Latin? I think so. In the plain reading, not the scripture, but the disputation, two different connotations, not cause for a loss of hope, but must utterly really abandon. So it's like an ultimate despairing. You should abandon your own hope. And then have the desire aroused in you to be humble, as you are humble. Seeking the grace of Christ. It's certain that human beings must utterly despair or abandon their own abilities before they prepare to receive the grace of Christ. Yeah. But the word seeks deadly. Hmm. And then the word creates. Yeah. Luther in, in the tradition likes to make distinctions between. For example, the despair of Judas and the despair of someone like David uh, or Peter. Um, there is a despair that can be caused when you say, you have no good works, you have no good will, there's nothing in you around you or that you can do which will make things right. That can cause you to have this sort of despair of just saying, is God for me? And if you despair of that question, you, know, you, you end up in the place of Judas where you hang yourself. Um, but what this, all this is saying is you're despairing not of God, but of your works and your will. And that despair is what opens you up and what gives room for the grace of God to be at work in you. As it says, it's prepa it prepares you to receive the grace of Christ. In other words, it's just the work of the law before the gospel is heard. But if you just have the law you're just going to kill the person. If the law doesn't drive people to Christ, um, you will have nothing but that ultimate despair which turns all of the hearers into Judas. Hmm. Kind of the illustration that he gives in the explanation is almost like a curable disease. Right? So there's diseases that we have today that we don't really despair over because we know there's medicine for it, but in the past they may have despaired because it would kill you. So we know 
the disease we have, and, and yet we don't despair because we know the cure is in Christ. So there's no waste. What I'm reading here is you, you needn't despair over your sin in a sense because you know that in Christ you have new, newness of life. Mm. But you do despair because you need to despair over your sin to find Christ. So yeah. that's the the distinction. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a fine distinction. It's it's just pointing to the fact that we do have despair, but it's just despairing of our own ability. Yeah, it's the fact that once we have swept away our good works or any anything that we can do and once we've swept away our will trust it's once it's been revealed to us that we can't choose or want this thing that does create a despair just because you are leveled you're you know everything is revealed to you but it is that despair which points you to Jesus going into theses uh, 19 to 24 um, and if you th- People often like to portray the Heidelberg Disputation with an illustration of like, you have the first part, which starts with the law of God, the second ends with the love of God. How do we get from one to the other? Um, and people often talk about Theses 19 to 24 as being um, the keystone of the arch. It's the center that holds the two things together and moves you um, from the law of God to the love of God. Uh, one thing that needs to remember as we move into these theses is that everything builds on what has come before. So you always have to remember that we've already said there is no work um, that can do anything for you. And there is nothing in your will um, that can do anything for you. Because we're getting to this distinction between what a theologian of, the glory, of glory does and what a theologian of the cross does. And, um, you know... A theologian of glory in part one has a false estimation of their works. And in two, uh, in the second set of theses, they have um, a false estimate of the power of their will. And that leads into this distinction between um, presumption about the knowledge of God's judgment on things. So that, that's what we're getting into now is, is that further question of once we've leveled all these things, are we trying, are we going to look to that reality are we going to try to see something past um, because at this point you know I think it's Ferdy talks about we've hit an existential crisis we have to um, dis- dis- decide how we're going to survive and is it going to be looking to the cross and the suffering and saying this is precisely where it is or are we going to try to look through the cross as it were to find some way to go back and validate our works and our will. Um, so let's just let's just move into theses nineteen to twenty-four. Um, that person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. Um, we talked about this a little bit earlier, and I think the main thing Luther's getting at there is. Um, Romans 1 says, you know, God's attributes have been made known um, since creation. But what happened? Um, 
through that knowledge? Were people saved? Um, did they come to an understanding of God's external word for them? No. 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 The answer is right. Yeah. No. And what, what, he, I mean, what he's saying here is, you know, theologians of glory, us, we will always want to assume that creation and history itself are sort of transparent things um, that we by our intellect can see through to find the workings of God in our world and in our life. And what we always do then is put things together. Um, we, We find a nature of God and a logic to God's working that fits a way that makes these things work for us. You know what I'm saying? Can you say that one more time? When we, when we trust the old Adam to look at history and creation and the works of God, um, we will always find a way to talk about God's nature um, and to talk about the way God has done things in a way that will not sweep away our good works and our will but will in fact justify them. It will find a way to defend them. Um, We will look through the particularity of the cross, which says, you know, your good works do nothing, and your will that you could not choose this. And we will find all of these, you know, universals, sort of justice and and glory and uh, majesty. And then those find find ways to help defend our project of of being theologians of glory because, of course, my good works must be contributing to um, my way along the path of righteousness because we have this law. It's it's just all of these ways that we trick ourselves into thinking that that we are okay. I'll read this quote from Luther and see if it helps it it make a little more sense. Maybe this isn't Luther. I don't actually have a citation. It just says, As fallen creatures, we will always be threatened by God, who is hidden by the masks of divine majesty. And we will, we will try to do away with those masks through fancy theology. The only refuge is the word of the cross in the here and now, through the preaching of the cross in the living present, not through theological explanations. We are defended from the terror of the divine majesty. And that's just a way of getting at saying that... Um, Luther concedes that we do have a natural um, knowledge of God, but that insight exists at some sort of purely cognitive level um, that doesn't get at the way um, God has specific intentions for humanity, which are revealed to us um, in the work of the cross. So it's only the faith that's created by the word of the cross which opens up to us um, who God is for us, in his revelation. Of course, that begs the question, how did the Old Testament saints, how were they saved? Mm. You have to ask that question. Yeah. Because it kind of dovetails with what this naturalistic theology purports. Mm. For example, in Jonah's, uh, uh, in the book of Jonah, you've got the sailors, and we talked about it a little bit yesterday, and how they were saved, if you will, after the after the great storm, and the the sea stopped, the wind and the waves they stopped, 
And they then made sacrifice. I don't know what that means, but that's what they did mm -hmm. after that storm. So what was it, you know? What did they do? Yeah. Dr. Gage says they became five-point Calvinists at that time. <laughs> that's yes. what he said. That was his comment uh, <laughs> as we studied Jonah. They accepted Calvin into their heart. <laughs> no, they, they accepted whatever they did. They became believers, legitimate believers. So you have to ask that question because I'm, I'm not sure. Um, and, I, and I can see the, the tension because there is something there, but there's something not there. Yeah, and just to jump in there, you know, Luther addresses this specifically in the Galatians commentary. It says, we all, um, you know, the Old Testament saints, just like us, received a promise from God. And the only distinction between us and them is that we have the promise of Jesus who has come, and they had the promise of Jesus who was yet to come. Um, that's the only distinction between us and them. And the, the example from Jonah is interesting because it plays right into this where Luther would say, yes, they did have this natural knowledge that there is a God, which was revealed in the crisis of the ship. Um, but they didn't know who that God was because it's the office of Jesus Christ to make God concrete and certain for you. It's the office of Jesus Christ to reveal the identity of God. And without Jesus Christ there, they were just praying to the force. The, yeah, just just. But they made the sacrifice. That's the point. They made Very sacrifice good. after that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what that means. I don't. Yeah, I was. Exactly. I'm not. I don't want to argue. I'm not trying to push that out. But, you know, I got the Jonah account here too, and it's the divine name. So I mean, they heard Jonah praying mm -hmm. to Yahweh. And then they call out to Yahweh, and then they offer sacrifices to Yahweh. So I, mean, I think that's key too. They, yeah. you know, just because they they had a infantile understanding of who God is, like we, I believe we do as well. Yeah. It's just you know, it's still it's still God. It's yeah. Not, you know. the, yeah. The the key there though is just saying that all all the time throughout history, nobody has existed without. There's always been this promise of God which could be declared to you. So, at least for Lutherans, we wouldn't make distinctions like that. And, um, saying that there was somehow a different way to be justified before God, before Christ came. Uh, that's true in covenant theology, too. I don't think that's distinct to Lutheranism. I, w I wouldn't have thought so, but I just don't want to speak uh, yeah, yeah. beyond. Salvation's always been by faith, by grace through by faith grace in Jesus Christ. Christ. Whether in its proleptic form or its accomplished form. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One of the pro one of the uh, difficulties with thesis nineteen is that Luther really just cites Romans one twenty and takes it as a given, <laughs> and then keeps going. Um, so I think we'll follow his lead and do that as well. <laughs> um, Thesis 20 says, One deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God through suffering in the cross. Now, I want to read um, Alistair McGrath's um, translation of this thesis because I think it's a little clearer. He says, The man who perceives the visible rearward parts of God as seen in suffering in the cross does, however, deserve to be called a theologian. I think that is um, 
Say it again. Well, the man who perceives the visible rearward parts of God as seen in suffering on the cross does, however, deserve to be called a theologian. And the, the, the biblical background that's playing into is Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, no, I'm not going to show you my glory, but you so can see my... So that's what rearward means? Yeah, it's the okay. posterior day. day. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the backside of God. Um, that's Kierkegaard in a little bit. Mm, yeah. Kierkegaard said, and I, you know, I'm, he was Lutheran, wasn't he? He was Dan Danish. <laughs> he says, you can't know God unless... Those who know God know Him truly, you know, both His front and His back. Mm -hmm. And He meant by suffering, by saying, you actually know the revealed God more yeah. when you see His backside. Yeah. And I think this is, this is an interesting thing, just to link the revelation in the cross to this story of Moses and saying God doesn't reveal His glory to us by um, saying, hey, I'm not hiding anymore. Mm -hmm. But He shows us this backside in suffering and in the cross and in this thing that looks um, utterly foolish. And, and Luther's explanation here is good. He says, The back and visible things of God are placed in opposition to the invisible, namely as human nature, weakness, foolishness. And he says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, For since in the wisdom of God, and he just goes on to quote what we read earlier, but now it is sufficient for anyone, and it does him no good to recognize God in his glory and majesty unless he recognizes him in the humility and shame of the cross. As Isaiah 45, 15 says, Truly thou art a God who hides himself. And the thing with Moses there is just saying, just as God didn't reveal his glory to Moses but showed him his backside, the thing that doesn't make sense um, and is not where we're looking for um, God to be revealed. It's the same thing that happens now. We look to God um, in the cross alone. So you follow that logic from you know, Romans 1, 20. God's you know, invisible attributes have, have been perceived. That doesn't, that doesn't do it for you. To 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 18 and following, talking about how God's wisdom turns upside down um, the wisdom of man. It says precisely where you're looking for God is not where he's found, but he's revealed himself in this other place. And that takes you back to this explanation um, where Luther quotes John 14, 8. And Philip says, um, show us the Father. And he's seeking after this glory. And Jesus says, Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And that's that's part of this reasoning of why Luther is just always coming back to saying that true theology or the true recognition of God is seeing him in the cross and in the suffering of His the cross. Backside. Yeah. He who has seen my, the backside of God mm -hmm. has seen the Father. Exactly. Very fair to his book. He, uh, in his typical way, that God refuses to be seen in any other way. Somehow I find that very helpful. Hmm. And then, his omnipotence and his omniscience. God refuses to be seen in either way. Yeah. It even carries into Revelation, right? When Jesus reveals himself to John mm. and says the lamb was slain. That's right. Before the beginning of time. The lamb was slain as if where where's that qualification? 
it, it wasn't plan B. Looking as though it had been seen. Sorry. Yeah, but somehow when he peers behind the altar and he sees the lamb who had been slain since before the foundation of the world, maybe that's the phrase, hmm. that it was always, this goes back to even before the fall, Adam and remaining in the passive capacity, at the cross, that God's knowledge hmm. against his opposite here as posterior was always, always the plan. The cross was sort of like, oops, let's, let's, let's do something else. So is that how Adam saw and related to God as well in the garden? That's the point. Yeah. Because I walk in the garden all the time. When the one, of the, one of the interesting things we're sort of getting at here is, is in, insofar as God is revealed in this, it is still a, a, a hidden revelation. It's, it's a concealed thing that is only knowable by faith. Um, so there's no way that this revelation is just empirically verifiable as that's God on the cross or this is God walking around doing miracles. Um, that's a Kierkegaardian thing is to say that God hides himself in the very way that he reveals himself. Yes. Um, but that's the thing we hold on to, and in, in, in that, you know, the ground of our faith is never just sight, but it is this gift of revelation um, that is confirmed by the work and power and presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm trying to the phrase sub contrario? Where, where is that? Where does that appear? Um, God works it's the sign of the opposite. Yeah. And that whole phrase. I'm going to get back to you on that because it's, it's not coming to my mind at this moment. Yeah, I'd probably pursue these themes in a little paper. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um. I want to make sure that we're probably going to have to go to lunch and then come back and do 25 to 28, but I want to make sure we have plenty of time for those. Um, so really, are, are there any questions about theses 19 to 24? Um, 19 to 20 run, as, as Ferdy says, it's all about how the theologian operates. It's about you know whether you are willing to call the thing what it is and to say that God has identified himself in this thing that appears bad and evil? Um, or are you going to try to look past that to see something else? Whereas Theses 22 to 24, um, Luther circles back around to the place of wisdom and the work of the law. Um, and, and particularly he addresses um, that question of is the law evil or, or is wisdom evil? And it's not, because in Thesis 24 he says, that wisdom is not of itself evil, nor is the law to be evaded. But without the theology of the cross, one uses, misuses the best in the worst manner. Mm. Yeah. The, these theses in 19 to 24, I think, are in some ways the, the easiest and the most difficult to really latch on to. Um, Which ones? 19 to 24. The proof of 22 is just bloated. Bloated? Mm -hmm. Loaded. Oh, loaded. 
Sarah cannot be satisfied by acquisition. The remedy for curing desire is not lying satisfying, but extinguishing. Yeah, that's that nice line where the, the, the cure for desire is not um, lying satisfying it, but in extinguishing it. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one-week or semester-length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.